Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and today I wanted to talk about something that seems to be very pertinent right now with uh, what's been going on between Ukraine and Russia, and that is the identity of the King of the North and the King of the South. And I, I know there's a sermon going around, at least in the Adventist world, I've heard a few people discuss it about the king of the north and the king of the south uh, somehow being physically related to Russia and Ukraine and the things that are going on there. So, um, I wanted to look at the king of the north and the king of the south in depth today. Well, I mean, probably not doing it justice, but at least uh, slightly in depth so that we can understand exactly what the King of the North, who the King of the North is, and who the King of the South is, and then we can understand better what's going on before our eyes and, and prophecy. So one of the things that's very clear in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11 begins with the Medo-Persian Empire. And it begins with the Medo-Persian Empire. It actually skips Babylon. And the reason why is because if you go back to Daniel chapter 10, remember there, there weren't chapter and verse divisions in the original scriptures. So we got to make sure that when we're reading them, we're keeping them in context. They're going to make sense with each other. Okay, If it pivots many times, the Bible will make it clear that it is pivoting and going on to a new subject. It doesn't just switch all the time. Like I, I know there's some confusing verses out there, but just something to keep in mind. Context is everything. So the context of Daniel chapter 10 flowing into Daniel chapter 11 is that Gabriel has returned to Daniel to explain to him the dream which he was not able to here, the vision about the 2300 days prophecy. And the reason why is because Daniel passed out. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 8. We're not going to go there specifically, but you can read it. There was the prophecy about the morning and evenings where the, the verse that really has been a building block of Adventism, which is that... Um, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And Daniel, of course, thought that it was supposed to be 70 years and not 2,300 years. So he was, you know, quite obviously shocked by that. And he just couldn't, he couldn't take any more of uh, the vision. And he actually, he passed out. So as we look on, Gabriel returns. When we get to Daniel chapter uh, 9, Gabriel returns and begins to help Daniel understand the first part of the prophecy, which has to do with the, the ministry of Christ. And then in Daniel chapter 10, there is another explanation of the evening and mornings. And you can read about that actually in verse 14 of Daniel chapter 10 where he tells him, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. 
for yet the vision is for many days. So Daniel is having trouble with this time period prophecy. And Gabriel has come to explain to him that the prophecy is for many days. It's for, uh, it's for the latter days. It's for the, the last day events, in other words. And so this is the context of where we start. And the reason why it begins with Medo-Persia and not Babylon is because Daniel chapter 8 begins with Medo-Persia and not Babylon. It skips Babylon. It just talks about the ram with two horns and then the he-goat. The reason why is because the prophecy begins, the 2300-year prophecy, it begins in the time of Medo-Persia. It doesn't begin in the time of Babylon. So in a way, God is directing us to the time period in which we should be looking for the beginning of the 2300 year prophecy which as we know from Daniel chapter 9 that it would begin with the command to restore and build Jerusalem which happened in 457 BC so there was a literal king if we go into Daniel chapter 11 we see that there is the king of the south and the king of the north and that happens after the after the Grecian Empire really dissolves into four parts and then eventually into two parts and the king of the north and the king of the south which represents the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south and the Seleucid dynasty in the north they fight each other for years and the and Israel is changed is constantly being changed over on who whose territory they fall under whether it's the Seleucids or the Ptolemaic and many times because their rulers are so corrupt and cruel they always welcome the new rulers but in a very short time within a hundred years the same sort of things would be happening and the exact opposite would take place again so Seleucid Kingdom was up in it was literally speaking if you're looking on a map it's if you look at where Israel is you go straight north and east of there basically the remnants of a, a kind of a smaller Persian Empire that's what it was so it had Nineveh it had Damascus and it had Babylon as part of the the territory that was the king of the north's territory the king of the south alexandria they had which was really the capital later on now today it's cairo and so to understand these kings we we look at those areas and we look for the spiritual understanding not the literal in the last days and here's the reason why because there's too many things that are being identified in the last days and we see in other places of scripture that are clearly spiritual symbols and not literal ones how do we know well just looking at the king of the north for an for example if you jump down 
to Daniel chapter 11 verses 17 through 20, it clearly segues from, from the king of the north being this actual Grecian power, the Seleucid, the Seleucid Empire. And it becomes taken over by Rome. And this is acknowledged in the actual verses. And this actually took place in history. And it also correlates with the fact that Daniel chapter 8, the he goat, he has the four horns. And out of one of the horns is the growth of the little horn power, which we know to be pag the pagan Roman Empire. And then the papal uh, empire so pagan and papal Rome actually is a better way of saying it corresponds perfectly with that and we see we see that exactly that same history being said in another way here in Daniel chapter 11 verses 17 through 20 where it segues really from talking about the Seleucid versus the Ptolemaic conflicts to talking about Rome and it's very clear it's talking about Rome after we read these verses, we'll see why. And it's talking about the king of the north. That's the context. It says, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her. But she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. After this shall he turn his face to the isles, and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause him to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So, we clearly see Rome here. Here's, here's why. It says, after this he shall turn his face to the isles. It was Julius Caesar that had the campaigns of the, the islands off the coast of Europe in the northern section, particularly uh, England, modern-day England, and those areas where he came in contact with the Druids. So, that's, that's one that's one identifying mark there that now we're talking about Rome. Another thing is that it says he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So he turned his face toward the fort of his own land, just like Julius Caesar did. He came in and he there was a war and he marched on Rome and he won. He won and he became dictator for life. And as he was speaking in the Senate, Cassius and Brutus, along with many other conspirators, assassinated him. It's what we call the Ides of March. So he shall stumble and fall and not be found. That's what happened. So again, the history of Julius Caesar perfectly being portrayed here. And also, he's being, he's being highlighted as the king of the north in this section, in the context of it all. Then you go to verse 20, and it says, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. Who was the great raiser of taxes? 
there's no denying history. The Bible even talks about it in Jesus's day. That's the reason why. That's the reason why Joseph and Mary had to return to Bethlehem for the census because he was raising taxes. And who was this individual? It was the next, next of kin, of Julius Caesar, which was Octavian or Augustus, as he's remembered in history. Caesar Augustus. He became the first emperor, at least officially for Rome. And this began the the reign of the emperors. It says but within a f within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So he will and that's exactly how he died. He died pe people there's a couple different things that talks about whether he was poisoned or not, but he didn't die in battle and he wasn't slain by somebody with the sword in anger. But it says he was destroyed. So I think there's something to that idea that he was poisoned but he died really in his old age so clearly we're talking about spiritual king of the north now because the spiritual king of the north is now Rome and Rome Rome isn't Rome isn't in Syria Rome's in Europe right but they took over at this point they took over literal King of the North area, right? But the, the Bible never never moves away from this King of the North idea and King of the South. And you got to ask yourself, okay, wh what were the areas that they took over? They took over Syria and Babylon. Babylon. Now, in the last days, is the term for Babylon something important? Yes. The mother of harlots, mystery Babylon, mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. So spiritual, it's not talking about literal Babylon. Literal Babylon doesn't exist. And it won't, according to the Bible, it will not be rebuilt. Saddam Hussein tried to do it. Uh, others have tried to do it in the past. It will not be rebuilt. It's been judged. So the literal Babylon, no, it's not talking about literal Babylon. It's talking about spiritual Babylon and who do we understand spiritual Babylon to be at least Babylon the Great it's Rome it's Rome now mrs. white also adds in apostate Protestantism because they chose uh, to be part of that city if you will but the mother of harlots highlights Rome so now you have the Roman power literally taking over Babylon and that's a direct connection with prophecy at the end of time. So again, King of the North, Rome. King of the North, Rome. Another thing is that um, the king of the true King of the North is actually God. So there's another aspect to this King of the North idea that the Bible is presenting. And there's actually a few verses on this. I'm just going to mention two. Uh, and I'll also mention uh, one other aspect of this, not in the Bible, but it's very you'll find very interesting. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Listen, listen carefully to what Lucifer wants to do. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So he says, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the east, west, south, north. North. So God's, God's throne is represented in the Bible as being towards the north, right? And if you go into Freemasonry, in their, in their really quite symbolic language there, they have, in their room, the, the north is always dark because the north is a place of evil in Freemasonry. you got to remember, Freemasons are Luciferians, at least in the modern day. So it makes sense that Luciferians would view the holy God as evil and make that section dark. But there's actually something even more, a more powerful verse on this that I think really puts it in perspective. And that's Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 11. Remember that when the sin offerings were made, this is the sin offering, okay? So this is one of the most important offerings that could be made, the, probably the most important offering that could be made on a, on a daily, any given day. So it was the, the north side of the altar where offerings for sin were made. That's where they killed the animal. And this is what it says in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 11. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. So clearly implication there is that when you go towards the north, you're before the Lord. It says, And the priests, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle his blood round about the altar. So he wasn't, it, this is very important. They didn't just bring the animal up front to the altar and slay it there. They brought it to the altar and came over to the north side before the Lord, and that's where it was slain. So in a sense, God is the true king of the north. So that reveals another aspect of the character of this power. The king of the north not only represents the power that took over the actual land of the literal king of the north and then became spiritual Babylon, but it also represents a counterfeit usurping power. This king of the north calls himself the king of the north in a spiritual sense, but really, he's an imposter. And this is very clear. We can see this, I mean, throughout history. But I'm just going to give you a, a quote here. This is from Christopher Marcellus addressing Pope Julius II during the Fifth Lateran Council, which began in 1512. And it's quoted in Alexander Hislop's book, uh, The Light of Prophecy, Let In on the Dark Places of the Papacy. Uh, written in 1846. This is what it says. Take care that we lose not that salvation, that life and breath which thou hast given us. For thou art our shepherd, thou art our physician, thou art our governor, thou art our husbandman. Thou art finally another God on earth. So clearly, in Christopher Marcellus's mind, the Pope... Pope Julius, this man, human being, just like you and me, was God. In other words, Christopher Marcellus, in a spiritual sense, could, have, could be calling him, thou art another king of the north, but on earth. 
So that's important to remember for the King of the North. So clearly the King of the North in the last days is spiritual. So what do we expect to see from the King of the North? If we're seeing the last day battle between the King of the South pushing at the King of the North, we know that it's going to involve uh, the papal powers and their allies. However, let's talk about the King of the South for a second. Now, first off, we have to also, if we're going to apply a principle, like if we're going to see that the King of the North clearly is a spiritual power, it's not Turkey, it's not, it's not Syria, uh, it's, it's clearly a spiritual power in the last days, then you can't apply that principle to, to one side and not to the other, in, especially in the same prophecy. We have to keep it in context. And any rules that we apply, whether we're doing it hypothetically or to test a hypothesis in some way, rather, um, or whether we're doing it, you know, as a rule, we have to do it to both. We have to be consistent to see if it's true or not. So, for instance, like with the King of the South, if we're looking at the King of the South, uh, it was literal Egypt. So in order to understand the identity of the spiritual King of the South in the last days... We have to understand what what the mindset or what the characteristics were of of Egypt in the past, from what the Bible has to say about Egypt. So, where's the biggest confrontation with Egypt that we see in scriptures? Well, of course, it's Exodus. So, if we go to the book Exodus, chapter five, verses one through three, we learn a lot about about Egypt's king or this at this point in time a king of the south the literal king of the south and his mindset so this is verse one through three of exodus chapter five it says and afterward moses and aaron went in and told pharaoh thus saith the lord god of israel let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness and pharaoh said who is the lord that i should obey his voice to let israel go i know not the lord neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Now, the reason why I included verse 3 in there, it will become clear in a second. So Pharaoh, this literal king of the north, or literal king of the south, rather, He's approached by Moses and Aaron, and they ask, they say, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Pharaoh's response is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. In other words, Pharaoh's first response to this Lord God of Israel is that, I don't know who you're talking about. Why should I obey this person or this God? I don't know who this is. So Pharaoh had an atheistic mindset. He didn't believe in God and he didn't know who he was. He, he had a, a spirit of unbelief, if you will. He said, I know not the Lord neither will I let Israel go. And then it, it almost seems 
as if as if Moses and Aaron are trying to explain actually who the Lord is that they're talking about. Because although they've already said the Lord God of Israel, it says in verse 3, and they said, the God of the Hebrews hath met with us. So they're trying to explain to him, in a sense, they're trying to explain to him, they're giving him more detailed information of who this God is. This is the God of the Hebrews. The God of the Hebrews hath met with us, let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God. So, of course, we know where the story goes from there. Pharaoh refuses. But we learn a lot from, from just these couple verses about, about the mindset of spiritual Egypt in the last days. Or the spiritual king of the south in the last days. So the king of the north represents really false, I mean, if you want to just boil it down, it represents false religion, false religion being spearheaded by the papacy, you know, and this ecumenical movement would fall under that, you know, feudalism in the past would fall under that, you know, fascism, different elements of fascism would fall into that. And on the king of the south side, you have atheism and what sort of uh, governments do atheism create? Well, those who are strictly antagonistic towards God, they always create communism. That's always the religion that is created. That's why Christians are underground uh, in China right now. And that's why Christians were massacred throughout Russia in gulags during the reign of these ultra tyrannical communist leaders and today you know it it doesn't seem as bad because i guess because we're we're talking with these groups now but you got to remember uh china is still they're harvesting people's organs they they, they have no respect for life they, they destroy their own people. They'll kill their own people. And they have. Under Mao Zedong, 60 million people died. Under Stalin, 50 million people died. According to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So these powers are persecuting powers and they're strictly antagonistic towards uh, Christianity. So, and, and the thing is, they're spiritual kingdoms as well. They're not a literal place that you go to. There are places that have it, like China, like China, places like China and Russia that have that have the strong socialistic tendencies. But but when you look at the world, atheism it exists everywhere. Last time I checked, there's atheists all over America. But America, in and of itself, doesn't represent the King of the South. We know from prophecy in Revelation chapter 13 that America becomes very, very religious and sets up the image of the beast. So America, regardless of how communist, communistic and atheistic it looks, it will become very religious. But there's atheists here. There's atheists here in America. There's atheists everywhere. The religion is atheism. The type of government is communism, and the science is evolution.
this is what goes and this is this has been the reign of this power really since 1798 when it was fulfilled really by France and Mrs. White makes this even more clear if you go to Great Controversy page 269 and again once you read this it's so clear that it is a spiritual thing being spoken of here because France is nowhere near Egypt. Yes, Napoleon went down into Egypt. He fought different battles there. He also lost his navy there. So it's it's not it's it's not significant in in understanding um, a literal Egypt is what I'm trying to say. It's a spiritual Egypt. It's a it's a it's an atheism. It's a it's a spiritual kingdom throughout the entire world. And with the King of the North, it's the same thing. There, it, there's, there's apostate Protestants and there are Catholics in every country. It's a spiritual kingdom throughout the world. Just like God's kingdom in the last days is a spiritual kingdom throughout the world. It makes it all very clear. They're all following the same rules. So when it's talking about, when it's talking about the king of the north entering into the glorious land, if you go to Malachi chapter 3, the Bible says that God's people will be called a delightsome land. So it's talking about God's people. So when when this king of the north enters into the glorious land, the Bible's literally saying that the Antichrist power will infiltrate the church. That's what it's saying. And clearly, that's what's going on today. Anybody paying attention, anybody with... Anybody who, who's not being careless and indifferent to everything can see that blatantly going on. So from Great Controversy, page 269, again, the spiritual application. says, The great city in whose streets the witnesses are slain and their dead bodies lie is spiritually, spiritually Egypt. Of all nations presented in Bible history, Egypt most boldly denied the existence of the living God and resisted his commands. No monarch ever ventured upon more open and high-handed rebellion against the authority of heaven than did the king of Egypt. When the message was brought to him in the name of the Lord, Pharaoh proudly answered, Who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto his voice and let Israel go? I know not Jehovah, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is atheism, and the nation represented by Egypt would give voice to a similar denial of the claims of the living God and would manifest a like spirit of unbelief and defiance. So the countries that manifest like spirit of unbelief and defiance, they make up those communistic countries, those, they make up part of the spiritual kingdom that is the king of the south. The great city is also compared spiritually to Sodom. The corruption of Sodom and breaking the law of God was especially manifest in licentiousness. And this sin was also to be preeminent characteristic of the nation that should fulfill the specifications of this scripture. According to the words of the prophet, then, a little before the year 1798, some power of satanic origin and character would rise to make war upon the Bible, and in the land where the testimony of God's two witnesses thus be silent, should thus be silenced, 
there would be manifest the atheism of the Pharaoh and the licentiousness of Sodom. And if you skip down to page 273 and 274, it states, the atheistical power that ruled France during the revolution, which we've talked about in depth what went on during the French Revolution. So it says, the atheistical power that ruled in France during the revolution and the reign of terror did wage such a war against God and his holy word as the world had never witnessed. The worship of the deity was abolished by the National Assembly. Bibles were collected and publicly burned with every possible manifestation of scorn. The law of God was trampled underfoot. The institutions of the Bible were abolished. The weekly rest day was set aside, and instead, every tenth day was devoted to reveling and blasphemy. Baptism and, com and communion were prohibited, and announcements posted conspicuously over the burial places declared death to be an eternal sleep. The fear of God was said to also be far from the beginning of wisdom that it was the beginning of folly. All religious worship was prohibited except that of liberty and the country. Right, and this was called their policy of dechristianization. And eventually what happened, they they even deposed the Pope himself. So that's where you see in Daniel chapter 11, the king of the south pushing at the king of the north. Right? What we haven't seen yet is we haven't seen the king of the north come back like a whirlwind and destroy and destroy the land of Egypt. It says the land of Egypt will not escape. Well, communism still exists. Atheism still exists. And evolution still being taught. So this, is, this has not been fulfilled yet. The king of the south has pushed. The king of the south has pushed beginning in 1798 when they deposed the pope. Uh, Napoleon's general Berthier deposed the pope took him into exile, he died in exile, they took away the papal states, and the papacy was not able to rule as a horn power, an official horn power with a kingdom, as it had in the past. It was relegated back to just a, you know, impersonating spiritual authority. And this power, this deadly wound that was given, it has not been healed. It's been being healed in the process but it's not fully healed until they regain their their temporal power which they have not done yet now an argument can be made that yes they have because they do it in the shadows but when it's official when the sunday law comes and you see the actual image of the beast the hierarchical structure of the church being set up here in the united states and then being that being pushed on the rest of the world, then you'll really see the exaltation of the papacy, and therefore you will see the exaltation and reestablishment of the papacy in its temporal sense. Therefore, the 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 healing of the deadly wound. And you got to remember that the Jacobin cause was taken up by the communists. This is from Wikipedia on the French Revolution. It says. The Jacobin cause was picked up by the Marxists in the mid-19th century and became an element of communist thought around the world. In the Soviet Union, Gracchus Bebeuf, uh, a French revolutionary leader, was regarded as a hero. In fact, they sang in the Bolshevik Revolution, the communist takeover of Russia, they sang 
songs from the French Revolution. They sang them in French and they also sang them in Russian. So if anything, what's going on right now would represent really two aspects of the King of the South because uh, from what I've heard, you, Ukraine has been bringing in a lot of alt-left uh, ideas and principles into their country. A lot of wokeism, as, as they would say. And we have Russia, which still maintains communism in their country. We have a battle between the king of the south and the king of the south, essentially. It's a, it's a, it's a non-prophetic battle. It's just another wars and rumors of wars. That's where it fits into prophecy. Wars and rumors of wars. So I hope that this helps uh, folks understand and... I hope this has been a blessing to you. I know I went a little bit over time, and I apologize for that, but I just wanted to get through uh, all the material today, and I hope you guys have a better understanding of what Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, especially through 45, is talking about. I'm Cody Moore, and you've been listening to Truth Triumphant Radio. God bless.